Not very long ago, Lisa and I were watching a, a streaming show, and we were in the second season of a show that we really enjoyed, when very unexpectedly in the show, uh, two women embraced and kissed one another. And this sort of nod toward lesbianism has become all the more common in our culture and raises the question, what should we as a church or what should we as Christians do in response to how the culture thinks about or is thinking about or promoting uh, views of sexuality that are different than what the Bible talks about? Or different example on college campuses today. Uh, there are in lots of public schools a sort of legalism about free speech and that we're not allowed to speak about certain kinds of things. Uh, how should the church respond to that? How should we feel about those kinds of things? What should we do about that kind of stuff? Or you look around our country today and you see just untold gun violence that just cuts you to the heart and you think, what is the matter with the society in which we live? that these kinds of things are happening. And the question is, well, well, what's the church's role? Do we have a responsibility to stop that stuff? How are we supposed to participate in what's going on in the culture around us? Should we as a church have an opinion about fiscal matters? Should we have an opinion about the appointment of judges? We live in a culture and a society that is non-Christian and is increasingly anti-Christian. And the question that we have on the table for us this morning is, what is the role of church or Christians in the society in which we live? Now this is a difficult question, but one that I'm grateful to have these kind of two weeks. So last week Tom talked about sort of the church or God and family, and this week we're talking about the church and culture. One of the reasons, or the main reason we're doing that is because this is the topic God gave us, but one of the ways he communicated that he wanted us to talk about it is that many of you asked that question or indicated something related to that uh, in the survey we did about uh, what we might spend these couple of weeks on before we start the Gospel of Matthew next week. And so in praying about it, I'm glad to talk about this, but I just want to say up front, this is a tough topic. And lots of Christians sort of disagree about what is the role of church in society. How are we, what are we supposed to do? And so it's a confusing topic, but it's a super important topic. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to ask your uh, mercy and forbearance. I want to work through this with you. We're not going to cover each of the individual issues that I just sort of mentioned. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a general principle from the scriptures about how I think God wants us as Christians or us as a church to engage in the culture and the society in which we live. But it's gonna take us some time to kind of build the case and to try to understand what it is God is saying. So I just ask that you stick with me. And that what we wanna do is we really want to dive deeply into God's word because this is an important topic, it's a hard topic, and we really want to understand the fine nuances of what God is saying about this. Now I think that in many ways the past couple of years have prepared us as a culture and us as a church to really think about this topic this morning. What I mean is, is a couple of years ago here at Calvary, we were going through a sermon series in the book of Revelation. 
And Revelation has a very apocalyptic feel to it. It has a very sort of cataclysmic events are happening in the book of Revelation. And no accident, at the same time we're reading about all of these incredible plagues and events going on in the book of Revelation, we were right in the middle of a plague of our own, which was COVID. And watching what God was doing in Revelation and watching what God was doing through COVID, they seemed to be resonating together and it was like God was shaking the very foundations of the earth. Shaking the foundations of culture and society and especially of the church. And we watched many things crumble and continuing to crumble as a result of that very, very difficult experience that the whole world uh, went through. After Revelation, God took us to the book of Genesis and we just spent the past year as a church in the book of Genesis, and it's like God was sort of laying a new foundation. He was doing something new. So after he shook the earth, he was laying a new foundation. Now, anytime you see a foundation, like here's a picture of a foundation, it always begs the question, or at least for me when I see a foundation, you kind of think, well, I wonder what kind of house or building is gonna be put on that foundation. As it is, you can't live in a foundation, But the foundation is very important for understanding, well, what kind of house goes on this foundation? And as we were going through the book of Genesis, we were reminded again that even though this world is is in bad shape, that God is a creator God and that God is constantly wanting to bless. That's the foundation that was laid in Genesis. Now the question is, is okay, after Revelation and Genesis, What kind of house does God want to build on the foundation that he's been laying for us as we've gone through the book of Genesis? Now at this point you might be thinking, what does this have to do with how the church is supposed to engage with culture? It actually has a lot. Because if you think about it, when you build a house, houses are usually built in neighborhoods. And when you see the way somebody builds a house, when you see the way they position it on the lot, when you see the way the architecture is done, when you see whether or not they apply for variances to local zoning laws, when you see how the landscaping looks, that gives you some indication of what that person who is building their house thinks about engaging with neighbors. If you see lots of walls up and you see the house sort of turned away or set way back on the property, you think, okay, that person doesn't want anything to do with their neighbors. If you see a sort of welcome and opening house with a, you know, a, a walkway and those sorts of things, you might think, oh yeah, they want to engage with the neighborhood. Well, the church is God's house. And when we see the kind of house he builds on a foundation, that will help us to understand how God thinks we ought to engage with our neighborhood, engage with the culture and the society in which we live. So we want to spend a little bit of time and think about, okay, here's the foundation. You could build different houses on that same foundation. The foundation that God lays for us in the book of Genesis what kind of house might he build on that foundation? Because that will tell us about how God wants to engage with the culture and the society around us through us as the church. Well, let me suggest that there are actually a couple of options for the type of house you can build on the foundation in Genesis. The first option is found in the book of Exodus. 
No surprise, Exodus is the book in the Bible that follows right after the book of Genesis and is narrating immediately what God is doing after the events of Genesis. In the book of Exodus, I would label what you have going on there or the kind of house we see God building as the kingdom house. And I say this because the book of Exodus is effectively about who is king. And what God is doing in the book of Exodus is he sees that the children of Israel are enslaved to the cultural, societal, governmental power of the day, which is Egypt. And in the midst of that, God comes to pick a fight with Pharaoh. He sends Moses, his representative, to have a direct confrontation with Pharaoh. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, let God's people go. Pharaoh says, no, 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 they're not God's people, they're my people. Moses says, they owe worship to God and you are keeping God's people from being able to worship him. Let them go. And what gets set up in the book of Exodus is a battle to find out who's really king, who's really got power. And the point of Exodus is God is proving and showing that he is king and Pharaoh is not. And that effectively God overwhelms Pharaoh with his power. He does plagues, he does miracles, he does all this stuff to show directly to Pharaoh that God is king and Pharaoh is not. And at the end of the book of Exodus, Israel is now a nation. They have been formed into a kingdom. And so we call this the kingdom house. Another way to say it, if you think about the relationship to culture, is what you have going on in the book of Exodus is cultural warfare. Pharaoh is in charge of culture. He is the dominant force in society. And God directly confronts him. He picks a fight with Pharaoh, and he absolutely, totally decimates Pharaoh and Egyptian culture. He shows his power, and at the end of the book of Exodus... There is great praise that God and God alone is king. Now as wonderful and as beautiful as the house that is built in the book of Exodus is, I want to let you in on a little secret. There's a fatal flaw in that house, even though God built it. And the flaw is this. It happens in Exodus 32. As the children of Israel are leaving the land of Egypt, after God has literally shown up and powerfully punched Pharaoh in the face and completely decimated and destroyed him and proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is king and Pharaoh is not, the people of Israel choose to worship an idol. Instead of giving God the worship that he is due, they instead turn to give their worship to a golden calf. And in the middle of this beautiful kingdom house, you see this crack that something is wrong in this house. And we get the sense that despite the fact that God has done an amazing thing, that something is fundamentally wrong. And that given the choice, God does not want to build that kind of house again at this point on that foundation. Fortunately, there is a second option for the kind of house you can build on the foundation that Genesis lays. 
And that's found in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, it might not be immediately obvious as to why Matthew is a follow-up to Genesis the way Exodus is a follow-up to Genesis. Clearly, Genesis, Exodus, it's the very next book. But maybe you're willing to accept that the fact, well, Genesis is the first book of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, and Matthew is the first book of the New Testament or the New Covenant, so maybe you can see some parallels between Genesis and Matthew. Well, what's sort of implicit in that is becomes explicit with the opening of the book of Matthew. Here's what Matthew 1.1 says, the very first line of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now in this opening statement, there are two callbacks to the book of Genesis. The first, I put it up there in Greek, and if you're willing to accept that that first strange-looking letter in parentheses, that's a gamma, so it's a G sound. You might be able to read that although in English we've said genealogy, in Greek the word is actually, the, the V-looking thing is a new, it's an N sound. The word is actually Genesis. And so while we call this the Gospel of Matthew, it's named after the person who wrote it, the book never calls itself that. What the book entitles itself is the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. That is the opening line of the book. You can't help but think of the book of Genesis, but it's not the Genesis of the world, it is the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. Second, Jesus is the son of David, but also the son of Abraham. And Abraham is the most important character in the book of Genesis. And what we've come to find out is, is that the son of Abraham is Jesus. And it's really the continuation of the foundation that was laid in the book of Genesis. And so Matthew is our second option for the kind of house that can be built on the foundation of Genesis. And if Exodus is entitled the kingdom house, I would like to entitle Matthew the gospel house. Because in the gospel of Matthew, we actually have a different way of engaging with culture. The house that God builds in Exodus looks one way when you see it in the neighborhood. The house that God builds in Matthew looks a different way when you see how it engages in the neighborhood. Now, what's the difference? Here's where you got to stick with me, all right? In order to do this, we need to take a tour of both houses in order to sort of compare and contrast them to see the difference between the two types of houses. We got to take a tour. So what we're going to do, and here's where you got you to stick with me. I'm going to be the realtor, and you're going to be the house buyer. And I'm going to take you quickly through the houses, and what we're going to do as we go through these houses is I'm just going to note for you the significant features of each house so that when we get done, we can compare the two houses and see the difference in how they engage with culture. All right, you with me? You up for our tour? Yeah. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus, which is page 44 in the church Bible. So Exodus, and we're just going to go through this. And what I'm going to do is up here on the screen... I'm going to put a list of the significant features uh, of the various books, Exodus and Matthew, as we tour these two houses. 
Number one is when you open to page 44, you're going to find a little blank space between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. That just looks like a few blank lines, but what that represents is 400 plus years of silence where God is not speaking to anybody. So the last recorded conversation we have between God and anybody comes at the end of the book of Genesis. And then God doesn't speak to anybody that we know of until the beginning of the book of Exodus and there's 400 plus years. So you can kind of imagine we're walking up the walkway into the Exodus house, and as your realtor I'm pointing out to you, notice the landscaping. The very first uh, thing about this house is that it begins with 400 plus years of silence. It comes after 400 plus years of silence. Number two, if you look in chapter one, you see a list of names in the first few verses. And the book of Exodus opens with a genealogy. This is a list of the people who went down into Egypt. These are the sons of Jacob. Number three feature of this Exodus house is that we find out when the book of Exodus opens, when the curtain rises, the people of God are enslaved to the ruling power of the day, that's Egypt, and the evidence of their slavery is that baby boys are being killed. Baby Israelite boys are being murdered and there's nothing that the Jewish people can do about it because Egypt has all of the power. And so the evidence that they are under the thumb of Egypt is the fact that baby boys are being killed. Number four, chapter two of Exodus, the first big event in the book of Exodus is the birth of a very special baby. Chapter two tells us about the birth of Moses. And Moses is going to be the main character in the book of Exodus, obviously besides God. And the birth of Moses is what begins the book of Exodus. Now along with Moses' birth in Exodus chapter 3, we also have the revelation of God's name. So as Moses grows up, God reveals to him his name. I am who I am, or Yahweh. Nobody's ever heard that name before. God gives it to Moses. So feature number four of the Exodus house is that we have the birth of a baby and the revelation of God's name. Now, if you're sticking with me, we're in chapter 3. Now we're turning chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. This is feature number 5. The pages we just turned through is the confrontation with Pharaoh. Moses is going to pick a fight with Pharaoh. He goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no deal. And there is now a fight face to face between God and Pharaoh. 10 plagues that culminate in the death of the firstborn of every Egyptian. This is when God begins to flex his muscles in such a way that at some point Pharaoh drops out of the contest. And with the final plague, which is called Passover, or the death of the firstborn, God absolutely and totally overwhelms Pharaoh. Ten plagues, we just turned through them. The Red Sea, when Egypt tries to chase after Israel, God drowns them all in the Red Sea and decimates Egyptian culture and power. That's number five, five through 15. Number six feature of this house, in chapter 16... God then takes the children of Israel who've been set free from Egypt and he leads them into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he feeds them bread from heaven. So manna 
This happens, Exodus chapter 16. Keep turning with me. We're on feature number seven of this house. Chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23, chapter 24. The middle of the book of Exodus, very important. Moses goes up Mount Sinai. And he received the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Mosaic Law. He comes down the mountain, and a significant feature of the book of Exodus is the giving of the law. Thou shalt not. The commands are given in the middle of the book of Exodus. Exodus 25, this is feature 8. 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. And then we get the sin of the golden calf, 32, 33, 34. Then we come back 35, 36, 37, 38, 39. One thing is happening in all of those chapters. And it's the building of God's house, the tabernacle. God wants to take what the children of Israel experienced on Mount Sinai. He wants to take it on the road. So he builds for them a house, which is his house, which is the tabernacle, so that God can go with them. So feature number eight is that God builds his house. Number nine, turn over to the end of the book of Exodus. The very last verse, Exodus chapter 40, page 79, verse 38. This is the very last line of the book. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So the ninth feature of the house is that God at the end of the book of Exodus is present with his people wherever they go. The tabernacle's now been built so that when they go on the road, God is visible to them, pillar of cloud and fire. Everywhere they go, Israel can see God because he is going there with them. And then the tenth and final feature that I as your realtor would like to point out to you about this Exodus house comes not in the book of Exodus, but later on in the book of Hosea, when God is asked to summarize the book of Exodus, he does it in one sentence. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And so Hosea 11.1 1 describes in sort of one sentence form what's happening in the book of Exodus. All right, that's our realtor tour of the book of Exodus. Remember what you saw in the house. It's up there on the screen. Now we're gonna walk to the second house we're looking at, which is Matthew's house. So turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. That is page 783. It's the first book of the New Testament or the New Covenant. And we're also going to take a tour of this house. And we're going to compare and contrast the two houses. And that should help us to understand something about the different options for how to engage with culture Number one, you should notice that the beginning of Matthew, like the beginning of Exodus, has got some blank lines, some sort of blank space. That blank space represents the move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It also represents 400 plus years of silence. So from the last time God speaks to anybody that we have record of, that's in the Old Testament, until Matthew comes on the scene, this gospel, we have about 400 plus years. Number two, if you notice how Matthew begins... It opens with a genealogy. We have a listing, a genealogy. Matthew opens with a genealogy. Number three, when the curtain rises on the book of Matthew and the times that it is talking about, the children of Israel are enslaved to the ruling power of the day, not Egypt this time, but Rome. 
And the evidence of the fact that they're enslaved to Rome is that baby boys are being killed. So Rome orders the execution of all baby boys two years and under in the Bethlehem region to try to stamp out the Messiah. But this is evidence that Rome is the one in charge and not Israel. Number four, the book of Matthew opens with the birth of a very special baby. Not Moses this time, but Jesus. The opening of Matthew's gospel, we're in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 at this point, is the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, and when Jesus is born, God's name is revealed to us. So in Exodus, we found out his name is Yahweh, I am who I am. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is born, we find out that his name is Yahweh saves, Yahshua Joshua or Jesus in sort of the Greek version of that name. And so the next feature, number four, is, is that the birth of a very special baby boy and the revelation of God's name. Number five feature in Matthew, we're going to have to leave this one blank for a moment. We'll come back to it. Number six, we're now turning pages. Matthew chapter four. The next significant feature of the book of Matthew is that Jesus is led into the wilderness by God and there is fed bread by God. That's the passage where Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and then angels show up from God and literally feed Jesus in the wilderness. Chapters five, six, and seven of Matthew's gospel. <clears throat> Jesus goes up a mountain, not Mount Sinai, but a different mountain. And while he is up on that mountain of Beatitudes, he starts quoting the law from Exodus and says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill, quote from Exodus, but I say to you, if you even have anger in your heart toward your brother, then you have violated the Ten Commandments. And Jesus proclaims the law to them with a few twists. So the next event we have in Matthew's gospel is the giving of the law. Now keep flipping with me. So 9, 10, 11, we got to get all the way to chapter 16. You're like, well, what are we flipping through now? We'll get back to that. Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 18 are three chapters in the gospel of Matthew. They don't show up in Mark, Luke, or John. The only place they show up is in Matthew's gospel. And they are heavily focused on the building of God's house. Jesus says, I will build my church. He goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and there he is revealed to his disciples and he says in Matthew 18, where two or three gather together, then I'm present in their midst. And so Matthew 16, 17, and 18, the middle of the book, just like in the middle of the book of Exodus, is taken up with the theme of building God's house. Now turn, if you will, all the way to the end of the book of Matthew. This is page 811. The very last line of the book of Matthew, Jesus gives the great commission, and then look at the very last sentence. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the closing line of Matthew's gospel is that God will be present with his people, visibly present with them, uh, wherever we go. Wherever God's people go, God will be present with us. And then finally, earlier on in Matthew, when asked to summarize Jesus' experience, especially in the early parts of Matthew, God summarizes it with one sentence, a quote from Hosea 11.1, 1, where he says, out of Egypt 
I have called my son. So, we've taken a tour of two houses. Do you see that they're relatively similar? Do you see that as we've gone through the two houses, we're like, well, here's the kitchen. Well, it looks just like a kitchen I just saw. Here's the bathroom. That looks just like the bathroom I just saw. Here's the bedroom. We went through the two houses and we're like, wow, those are remarkably similar houses. If you did the same thing for Mark or Luke or John, you would not find this same level of connection. Matthew is very clearly, very consciously being built on the foundation of Genesis and is paired as an option with Exodus in a way no other book in the Bible is. But the discerning buyer is going to walk through the Exodus house and go, yeah, kitchen's the same, bathroom's the same, bedroom's the same. But do you notice number five? The Exodus house, it's like it's got a bonus room. It's like you go into the room and it's like this cool entertainment system and it's got all sorts of like plaques and trophies up in the walls and diplomas and degrees and you're like, well, all things being equal, the Exodus house has got a bonus room in it. I like that. And the question is, okay, when we're going through Matthew's house, where's number five? Where's the confrontation with Pharaoh? Where are the plagues? Where is the death of the firstborn? Where's that number five bonus room? And here's where we got to pay very close attention. We did skip some pages in Matthew. There is something going on in number five that we didn't put up here yet. And I want to ask you, some of you know something about the gospel of Matthew. And so I'm going to ask this question. If you want to say it out loud, maybe. If you want to just think it in your heart, great. Let me ask this question. In the Gospel of Matthew, where is the time when God starts executing people and pouring out plagues on the earth during the time of Jesus? When do we see Jesus going around calling down hail or bringing in gnats or, or uh, darkness or having all of the frogs and the, the, the Nile turn bloody? When do we see plagues happening in the Gospel of Matthew? We don't. What do we get instead in the Gospel of Matthew that we flip through in all those pages? You get healings, the exact opposite of plagues. Instead of killing people, Jesus is miraculously healing people. Okay, well, where's the confrontation with Caesar? Where is the time in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus and Caesar sit down face to face and Jesus says, let my people go? Well, there isn't a confrontation with Caesar. There is a confrontation with one of Caesar's lackeys. Pontius Pilate, he's way down the chart. It's like you're meeting with a second lieutenant or something like that. But even in that confrontation, which happens at Jesus' trial, he doesn't say anything. There's no arguing. There's no debate. Pilate says, I got the power to free you, and Jesus does, he doesn't do anything. We don't really have a confrontation with Jesus or with, with Caesar. And then here's the most important question of all. In Matthew's gospel, where's the death of the firstborn? Where is Passover in Matthew's gospel? It's the crucifixion of Jesus. So we've got something that goes in slot five. But here's where the difference between these two houses comes sharply into the light. In the Exodus house, who are the firstborn that die? 
the Egyptians, the firstborn of the enemy are the ones who die. In Matthew's house, who is the firstborn that dies? Not the son of the enemy, but the son of the Most High. This is the, first, this is the good guy who dies in Matthew's gospel. And that is all the difference in the world. Everything about these two houses looks a lot alike until you get to that fifth point. And you realize in the Exodus house, you got a bonus room. And in that bonus room, there's all the trophies. There's like the deer heads on the wall. There's all the things that have been accomplished. There's a great entertainment system. But in the Matthew house, instead of that bonus room, you've got a different room. You got a room that's maybe like a wood shop in which you can do woodworking for your neighbors. Or maybe it's like an extra dining room in which you can invite your neighbors over and be able to share a meal with them. Or maybe you could think of it like a medicine closet in which you've stocked it full of medical supplies that you can share with your neighbors when they're in need. Or maybe you could think of it as a play area outside that the kids in the neighborhood can come and play. Do you see the difference culturally in engaging with the society around us? What we would say about Exodus is it is the kingdom house and it is about cultural warfare. But in Matthew, Jesus never even talks to Caesar. Caesar's in Rome. Jesus is in Israel. At no point in Matthew's gospel do we ever see Jesus doing cultural warfare. He never carries a picket sign. He's not anywhere promoting Greek democracy. At no point is he pushing a candidate for Roman Senate. Nowhere is he trying to pass legislation. We do not see him petitioning the Sanhedrin to try to get things changed. Therefore, what you have in the Gospel of Matthew is what we're calling the Gospel House. And the difference there is it's not cultural warfare. It's cultural witness. That Jesus has shown up to do something very different. So as beautiful and as wonderful as the kingdom house is, it has a fatal flaw. And the flaw is, if you don't change people's hearts, what good is having a Christian society? If you don't deal with the problem of sin, what good is having the most righteous laws on the planet? That's what Israel had. That's what they were given. They got done giving a perfect set of laws by God and they immediately turned around and broke the first one. That's the fatal flaw of that house. And so when Jesus comes, he says, we're going to build a different kind of house. It's a house that's not about cultural warfare. It's about cultural witness. Okay, so if God wants to build a Matthew kind of house on the foundation he laid in Genesis... How would we summarize what the church's role in society and culture is? There are three aspects of Genesis that Jesus comes to fulfill. Three roles that we see him take up. Prophet, priest, and king. These are introduced in Genesis and Jesus comes to fulfill them. So we as his church, meaning we are the body of Christ, meaning we are the representative of Jesus in this world, that Jesus is still engaging with culture and in society. He's just now doing it through us. 
What should we do? Well, we do these three things. The role of prophet, priest, and king. Prophet. What do prophets do? They proclaim. What is the church's job in society? To proclaim. We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the good news that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the whole world can be forgiven for their sins. We proclaim that the wages of sin is death. We don't shy away from the fact, saying to the culture around us, look, if you go that way, it just leads to death. We announce to the culture around us using words that, hey, look, God loves moms and God loves babies, but God hates abortion. We proclaim to the world around us that God wants everybody to be in meaningful relationships with another person, but God has reserved sex for marriage between one man and one woman. We proclaim to the world around us that God hates, absolutely hates gun violence. We proclaim to the world around us that God is not for racism. We proclaim that we're supposed to pay our taxes. We have been given a prophetic role as the people of God to stand up and to say, hey, look, this is what God wants. If you don't go that way, it results in death. But because of Jesus, you can be forgiven. You can be transformed. You can have a new life. And so our role as prophet, is proclamation. And we stand up and say, Jesus is Lord, and through him you could be saved. We also are called to be priests. Well, what do priests do? Priests represent people to God. The word that goes with that is pray. We pray for the culture around us. We pray for their leaders. We pray for people to be saved. We pray for God to have mercy on people who are turning against him. And going the wrong way, we pray for the people. We offer to God a sacrifice of praise that the culture itself is not giving. And then finally, and this is the tricky one. We're going to have to work through this one. We exercise kingship. How? Okay. Work with me on this. I told you in Matthew's gospel, there are no plagues. There's no confrontation with the ruling power of the day, and there's no death of the enemies of God. That was not fully true. There is in Matthew's gospel some plagues, or reference to plagues. There is in Matthew's gospel a confrontation with the ruling power of the day. It's just not Pharaoh or Caesar, it's Antichrist. And there is in Matthew's gospel a death of the enemies of God. It's in Matthew 24, and it's in the future. And what's happening in the gospel house of Matthew is that Jesus has pushed the kingship off into the future. That Jesus' right to exercise his kingship over the culture, Jesus' right to show up and punch Pharaoh in the face, Jesus' right to come and prove that he is king, that is coming, but not now. It is in the future. Why did Jesus push that off in the future? Because God loves the whole world. And God wants people to be saved. If Jesus exercises his kingship in the culture, he cannot allow them to continue to do what they are doing and must 
punish them. He must bring the plagues of Exodus, but God desperately doesn't want to do that. He wants more people to be saved. So in Matthew's gospel, what Jesus is teaching us is that God has pushed that off into the future. Jesus today is king over America, but Jesus today is choosing not to exercise his kingship in this country because he wants more people to be saved. Nowhere in the Gospels do you see Jesus turning over tables in Roman marketplaces. Nowhere in the Gospels do you see Jesus debating with Roman philosophers of the day or Greek philosophers. Nowhere in Matthew's Gospel do you see Jesus rebuking tax collectors and sinners who are coming to him. Where is Jesus exercising his kingship today? In the church. He turns over tables, but in God's house. He rebukes people, but it's his disciples. He gets in debates, but it's with Pharisees and Sadducees, not with Greek philosophers and Roman politicians. This third point, where is Jesus exercising his kingship today? In the church, not in society. So how do we play the role of Jesus as king? We present to the society an alternative way of living. An alternative way of, in this place, not the building, but among us as a people. We say to the world around us, look, this is what it looks like when Jesus is Lord. This is what it looks like to be a community of generosity, to be a community of hospitality, to be a community where people of all nations and all backgrounds and all races are not just permitted, they are welcomed and loved and part of what is going on. And the reason we're doing that is we're saying to the society, look, do you not think this is going poorly? Look at what happens when Jesus is Lord as a witness to them. And so what are we asked to do by God in the culture around us? Proclaim, pray, and present an alternative. We've not been asked by God to reform the legislation of the country in which we live. We've not been asked by God to try to change who the elected officials are. We've not been asked by God to try to get this country to look more like a Christian country. We've been asked by God to proclaim to pray, and to present an alternative. And here is the takeaway. And if you remember nothing else, if you're like, there was some weird list, and there was 10 things, and all sorts of stuff, and Exodus and Matthew, and I was totally confused. If you've been totally confused, here's the line. Remember this line. Hold on to this line. You cannot save people if you are waging war against them. You cannot save people if you are in a fight with them. And the problem with the Exodus house, it was very clear that God is king and Pharaoh is not. But what happened to the Egyptians? The reason God wants to build a different house now, there will come a time in which Jesus will exercise his kingship not only over the church, but over the whole world. But once that day arrives, there will be no one else who will be saved. Now listen, I'm with you. 
to be honest, I like the kingdom house as much as the next guy. Who doesn't want God to show up today in Washington, D.C. and show them all to be fools? Wouldn't you love it if Jesus showed up and just started calling down plagues? Wouldn't it be awesome if after all of this time and all of this debate, Jesus just showed up and cut through the heart of all of it? The disciples wanted that too. This is why after the crucifixion and the resurrection, the disciples are still asking the question, is now the time you're going to build the Exodus house? Like when are we going to show the world power? When are we going to call down fire from heaven? When are we going to do these things? Everybody wants the kingdom house. Except God knows what that would cost. It would cost the eternal damnation of all these people we want to prove wrong. It would cost people that God loves desperately to be shut out of the kingdom forever and ever and ever. And so he's waiting as desperately long as he can. And if you think it's bad, imagine how he feels. He's putting up with all of this stuff because he wants people to be saved. So here is God's invitation to you and to me. If you're frustrated and like, God, why aren't you doing some more stuff to fix this culture? If you're frustrated, God, why aren't you at more at work? Why don't you show yourself? Why don't you do something miraculous so that everybody can see? Why don't you do something that after COVID, the whole nation will repent? Why don't we do something like that? Ask yourself this question. If God is not doing the things you want him to do in culture, maybe he's up to something else. Maybe he's trying to accomplish something different. And maybe this morning you should hear him inviting you through the gospel of Matthew to say, come and I will make you fishers of men. Come and I will make you a city set on a hill. Come and I will make you salt and light in the world in which you live. Come and I will teach you how to pray. Come and I will make you love your enemies. Hear the words. These are the words from Matthew's gospel. These are invitations from Jesus. There are no invitations in Matthew's gospel. Come and I'll teach you how to do a protest. Come and I'll teach you how to get legislation through. Come and I will show you how to get people in positions of power so we can finally get some stuff done. There are no invitations like that in Matthew's gospel. What there are, blessed are the meek but they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who love their enemies. If you don't see God doing in culture the things you want him to do, maybe it's because he doesn't want to do those things right now. I think the most powerful, one of the most powerful pictures in all of the Bible is Jesus the Messiah. Very God of very God. No sin in his life whatsoever. Pure love. All the power in the universe. Omnipotent. Causing the very breath of all of the people in all of the world to continue to exist. That God hanging on a cross. At any point, he can call down legions of angels from heaven. At any point, he is giving the strength to the people who are killing him. And on that cross, as he hangs there, mocked, spit upon, the culture around thinking that they have completely and utterly destroyed him, that Pharaoh is finally victorious, while he hangs on that cross, just before he dies, 
He leads the thief next to him to faith. He knows full well that if he doesn't do that, that thief is going to hell. And so he loves him and you and I enough to hang there. Yes, the kingdom is coming, and praise God it's coming. But between now and then, Jesus has some marching orders for us. It's not to engage in cultural warfare. It's to lay down our life in the middle of a culture that hates us. And through that, let God save some more people.